Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I don't know if you're like me, but as we're working our way through the pandemic, I'm doing a lot of assessing of what I used to do as a teacher and thinking about what worked and maybe some of the things that I want to do differently once, uh, at least now that I have real students back in my classroom. I think it's always great to take stock and and to evaluate what we do as teachers. And of course, the things that I'm looking for, and I'm guessing you are too, are the tried and true methods that we've used to really inspire students, um, but also looking for new ways to do that. My guest today is Carmelo Piazza, Executive Director and Education Director for the Brooklyn Preschool of Science. Carmelo taught science at PS261 in New York for 16 years, where he developed a passion for using science as a method for teaching students multiple key subjects. In 2013, he opened the Brooklyn Preschool of Science, which now has two different locations in the city, and we're going to be talking to him today about how he uses science as a way of inspiring students. Carmelo, thank you for being on Teaching Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I want to I want to zero in on really two separate issues during our discussion today. One, of course, is um, the the legacy that you're establishing as a teacher um, in using science to inspire students. But I also want to talk to you about sort of how you and your students and your faculty are working your way um, through the pandemic, um, because I think that's you know obviously something that's confronting all of us. But let's start by learning about what the Brooklyn Preschool of Science is and sort of what the philosophy is that guides your instruction with students at the school. Absolutely. You know, and I guess it started back in 1997 when I first became a public school science teacher. And within 24 hours of me transitioning into that role, parents were coming up to me just thanking me for, hey, you know, my kid loves science. They've been here for five years. They now just had you for 24 hours and they can't stop talking about how much they love your class. And it made me realize literally 24 hours into me transitioning into this position of how powerful of a platform that hands-on ideology is. And, you know, 15 years later, I was teaching at PS 261, the entire school pre-K to grades five. And it dawned on me when every year my principal would call me into the office after the kids would take their fourth grade science exam, citywide test. And she would say, I need to talk to you. And what absolutely frightened me, I'm like, what did I do? She's like, no, 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 it's how you did it. And she would say, it's just amazing how they only see you guys, Carmelo, they only see you one day a week for 45 minutes, but yet they're all scoring threes and fours on the statewide science exam. And to me, again, it just stopped and proved how effective if you teach in this cross-cutting, hands-on, inquiry-based way, kids absorb the content, you know, and it motivated me to then transition out. I opened up a couple centers at the time, which ultimately then kind of dissolved out. And then my schools just became my dream, the Brooklyn Preschool of Science, a place where, you know, science is our lens, science is our hub, science is our engine, and the reading, the writing, the math, the art, the movement, the measuring, the computational learning all connects holistically to this beautiful running engine, which is science. So you're you're working with a, a particular age group of children. Um, so pre, so uh, preschool. Um, how how do you developmentally enter them into the world of science so that it's not overwhelming? Well, if you stop and you think about the age group that we're teaching, right? And and this is not just true for ages two to five year olds. It's even true when you go older. Is 
And I know it sounds so cliche that kids are natural born, born scientists, but this is who they are and this is what they do. They ask questions. The key is to not stop, you know, encouraging them to ask those questions. So what we try to do as a school and what we try to do as an organization is to foster that love of ask the question, do not be afraid to make mistakes. And that's what we embrace from the youngest age of two to our oldest age of five, getting ready to transition them into kindergarten. And it creates, you know, our goal is not to create Einsteins. Our goal is to create a love of learning and a love of learning in every capacity, in every domain, because that's my goal as, a, as an owner of a school is just to give my kids these amazing, beautiful early life experiences. And science is definitely the glue to make that all happen. What are some examples of the types of questions that a two-year-old, you know, might become fascinated by and then and then fast forward to a five-year-old and, and what's the developmental difference in the types of inquiry that they become, you know, engrossed in? Well, from the basic levels, if you think about like a two-year-old, in October, we take our children to a farmer's market, which is right at the end of Court Street. And a lot of the parents come on this beautiful walking trip with the kids. Now, imagine every parent brings a nice medium-sized pumpkin back into the classroom. And the teachers, while they're reading this amazing book called Pumpkin, Pumpkin to the Children, the assistant teachers are pre-cutting the top of these pumpkins. And on that morning, we're going to ask these children a very basic question. Like, does anybody know what is inside of this pumpkin? And some two-year-olds may know because they have prior prior knowledge and prior experiences. But just imagine now the investigation beginning with the basic two-year-old ripping out the pulp and ripping out the rind, separating the seeds. And just think about how it encompasses its sensory, its fine motor, its language development at its earliest stages. But now you stop there and you say, okay, you know, how do you scaffold out the concepts differently with your four-year-olds? Well, with your four-year-olds, there's just so much that we can do where you could take the pumpkin, you could actually teach them how to measure the diameter of the pumpkin by cutting out one-inch squares. I mean, it's it's there's no need to reinvent the wheel. It's keep that wheel going and just think about how you could take the learning experience from two to three and four and adapt to the needs of the kids developmentally at that age, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You, you kind of touched on this, but one of the things that I was um, fascinated by is that your philosophy as a teacher, but your your entire uh, school uses science as a vehicle for helping students learn other subject matter. Can you give some examples about how that takes place? Absolutely. I'm a huge believer that subject matters should not be taught independent from other subject matters. Of course, there's going to be times where you need to do that, but if you holistically make these beautiful cross-cutting connections, children are learning without even realizing that they're learning. So for instance, we do a really wonderful unit several times throughout the year that focuses on living things and biodiversity. I'm a huge advocate of biodiversity in a young age group because if you lay the foundation that animals and plants are beautiful at the age of two, three, and four, it creates a lifetime of loving them later on in life. So imagine we bring in these beautiful, gigantic mega mealworms, which are roughly maybe about you know two inches in length, and they metamorph into these beautiful darkling beetles. So now imagine giving a, a four-year-old this mealworm and giving them unifix cubes. Just imagine them using the unifix cubes to measure the length of that mealworm to cover a math concept. Now think about how you could teach vocabulary and language by singing songs like head, thorax, abdomen, and they're learning about the parts. <laughs> of that bug. Imagine giving them construction paper, pipe cleaners, and all of a sudden children are making a headband antenna 
while they're learning about the function of the antenna, they're seeing that that's the function of that mealworm and, and what the goal is there. You're connecting the art to identifying that part of the mealworm. We just connected math. Imagine giving them, I love this activity. We, I, I mean, when I buy mealworms, I buy them by the thousands. Imagine putting a bunch of uh, craft paper on a table with some paint and you just drop the mealworms on the paint and all of a sudden it looks like this beautiful Jackson, Jackson Pollock painting is just sort of created in front of your own eyes. And just in that one activity though, it, we connected the vocabulary you connected the language, the sensory, the art, and, and all of it was connected to this larger theme of what is a mealworm. And, and the beauty of all that is kids aren't even realizing that they're learning math when this mealworm is running across the table and they have to try to line the Unifix cube side by side. To them, it's fun. To us, it's a beautiful learning experience. <laughs> you know, your, your example, um, I have to digress just for a second because this is a great story. So um, you mentioned buying mealworms by the thousands. So my <laughs> daughter... My daughter had an iguana for um, about 10 years as she was starting out in kindergarten and going all the way up into high school. And of course, if you own an iguana, you you are beholden to sacrificing um, crickets, right, for the, for the thing to eat. So when she was in high school, she got the idea that it's it's a pain to go to the pet store to buy crickets a couple times a week. It would be far superior to order it in bulk from Amazon, which she did. She gets it upstairs to um, her room and then realizes that when you have 500 crickets in a box and you open it, you have to have a contingency plan that she did not have. Um, <laughs> put it in her bathtub, not really recognizing that crickets can jump out of bathtubs. And so we had crickets all over the upstairs of our house um, when we did this. And I, I think that she was probably doing some sort of an inquiry-based project. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I'm sure um, you slept good at night with the beautiful sounds oh, of crickets. Well, well and you know, you can, you, can, you can get many of them, but there's always the really smart holdout crickets that, um, <laughs> that, yeah. that do wake you up at night. So yeah, we had them going on for a while. Um, awesome. So one of the things that um, I wanted to ask you about, I... I've done a lot of work with um, STEM-related issues at the middle school level, mostly around coding. And one of the things that we know is that when um, young girls sort of get interested in something in the STEM field, by the time they get to middle school, sometimes that that interest starts to evaporate. Um, that's not the age group that you're working with. But when you're working with students um, in the, in the pre-K setting, are there things that you try to do to instill perseverance um, as they continue on with this inquiry-based and, and interest in science that maybe will hold them as they get a little bit older? Yes. You know, and we do that in different ways. And I think that you're right. It's so important to continue the methodology as they leave my school and transition to elementary and middle school, you know, because we do do coding. In my four-year-old mm -hmm. class, I have this most amazing robot by the name of Kibo, which is a screen-free robot so that the families that don't want their children being on a screen while they're in school, well, they're not. It's these amazing blocks, and each block has this amazing QR code, and while the kids are scanning the code, it creates these beautiful sequences, and it just creates such a dynamic experience for these kids. And more importantly, when you start them so young, it lays a foundation and a love and appreciation of something called computational learning, which, like you said, mm -hmm. 
in middle school, it needs to be even more evident, evident because this is the future. And what we do is I actually lend out my robots to my families. I mean, I have a great relationship. I have three schools in downtown Brooklyn. I love my students and I love my families. You know, so one year we had a little boy named Shy and the dad, it was, uh, I don't remember what break it was. And he's like, Carmelo, please, could I just borrow that for a week? I'm like, absolutely take it. You, you know, lend them curriculum, lend them ideas so that they can continue to foster the love of, of something as simple as robotics so that when they do leave me, you know, they still have that continuation. And then I do my best to have great relationships with um, public schools in the community and trying to get them to think about how you can move forward by incorporating these new ideologies, you know, into um, teaching curriculum, because I think complacency is bad. You know, so many of us have the same lesson plans that we use for years and we kind of got to break out of that mindset. You know, it's like you got to evolve in your teaching methodologies. Yeah, totally. So with respect to your schools, what, what are the, so, because you have a very intentional philosophy um, in the way that you teach your students, what are the things that you look for in teachers, the, the skills and, you know, sort of the orientations that they bring to the classroom that will help them be successful? That's a phenomenal question and kind of just it goes into what I kind of just explained. I've seen teachers who come in who have a preset idea of what it is that they need to teach. And if they're not moldable and they're not able to adapt to a new way of teaching, it's those teachers that are not going to succeed at my school. Because, you know, and this is not a knock on teachers that use the same lesson plans day in and day out, but the reality is, you know, you have to be able to think about where the kids are today and where we want them to be tomorrow. So mm -hmm. when I hire teachers from the minute I'm interviewing them, I, I I've explained to them, look, I've had my schools now for 10 years and in 10 years I have brought in 3d printing, coding and robotics specials. Like we have changed from who we were 10 years ago to today. We're a completely different school and we're going to be a completely different place five years from now. And mm -hmm. if you're willing to want to be part of that change so that we could give our beautiful children these amazing life experiences, then come on in, you know, be part of this amazing opportunity. But you can tell the teachers that are afraid. You can tell the teachers that when you talk about coding or for instance, this year, I just purchased 10 3D printers. And I could tell a lot of my teachers are nervous because if you've never had the opportunity to see what 3D printers can do and how easily they connect into a classroom, they might be a little timid, but me as an owner now, I'm like, okay, how do I bring in the proper staff developers into the school to show the teachers you don't need to be afraid because you're going to learn the way our students are going to learn. And it's going to be an amazing learning experience for everybody involved. Do, do the majority of your staff um, have, I mean, I know that in, in pre-K certification, there's not usually necessarily a subject matter um, uh, specialization, but do they, do they have an interest in science or do you have teachers that also come from other interest areas and see the value of what you're doing using science as a vehicle? Yeah. So with the city of New York, it actually is very clear that you have to have a degree in early childhood education to be a lead teacher in that setting. Um, but I do look for other, other people who have other loves and desires. Like for instance, you could look at teaching assistants. So many of my teaching assistants have degrees in biology, psychology, mm -hmm. and science related um, fields who maybe are at the crossroads in life saying, you know, I don't know what I want to do. And I bring them into my school. Like I have, a, I actually have a boy named Paul who I taught in kindergarten, believe it or not. And now I think he's 26 years old with his degree in biology. And he just brings in that, that ability to, you know, 
foster that inquisitive type of learning in the classroom. So I think you need to be creative when you're running a school and you're running an organization that even though the lead teachers have to have a specific um, educational background, there's a lot of other people that come in into the school that you could make sure have make a big difference and have a big impact on the children that they're teaching. Mm-hmm. When, when your students um, go through lessons, I would presume, but, but please correct me if I'm, if I'm misstating this, that the learning outcomes that, that each student gets is sort of uniquely individualized to that student because they, you know, they, they process the information differently. How do you balance that individualized passion and, and inquiry-based learning approach with the need to sort of develop certain standards um, on the part of the students? Absolutely. And you're right. I think differentiated instruction needs to happen in every age and how that happens depends on the age group depends on the teacher right what we do is we try to keep our classrooms relatively smaller in number we have a lot of extra people in my school so each one of my classrooms has a lead teacher an assistant teacher we also have several floating assistants in our building so that the teachers are then properly able to assess who these kids are what are their strengths and weaknesses? What are their likes and dislikes? Like we have four-year-olds that start the year that are already on a kindergarten reading level. So what we do is we premeditate, you know, prior to the year starting, have these amazing Zooms with these parents to see where these kids are. And then the teachers hit the ground running. Maybe some of these kids are going to have book bags, you know, not a book bag, but a bag filled with books, right? So that we actually could foster their love of reading. We could create sight words for those kids. Um, even from a from a hands-on perspective, imagine going back to that, like that pumpkin example where we're taking pumpkin seeds and we're putting them in clear Ziploc bags with paper towels and we're doing a real fun germination study. And one child is just adding so much water to that Ziploc bag where you just know that that seed is not going to germinate because it's underwater. But the beauty of that is let the child go through that process. The child who's going to be able to successfully grow their seed in five days, you're going to see that beautiful shoot root great, but it's a learning experience for the kid who added too much water. And that's the beauty of the scientists. You know, we, we, we grow up being afraid to be wrong because it's either you're right and wrong. What we got to do is break that stigma and we have to make kids just, you know, accept being wrong, but then ask the question like, why? Well, why did that happen? You know, and then you ask the question, well, look at this bag, which, you know, had a seed that germinated into this beautiful shoot and root and yours did not. Do you see any differences between the two? So differentiating instruction does happen and it happens in different capacities based on, you know, the metrics and the outcomes of what we're trying to achieve at that time. So as you describe that, uh, one of the things that popped into my mind is to what extent, especially with the age group that you're working with, do you do work in teams at all or is it, you know, pretty entirely individualized? Um, you know, I, I love your question from peers, but, but is it team-based yeah. projects as well? You, you're hit, you see again, and, and I am, I'm a huge advocate of science-based learning. The, the beauty of the science is it inca- you, you get as a teacher, you get to see where your children are developmentally at that time. And the beauty of the curriculum is you kind of could premeditate small group learning from large group learning to parallel play to individual play to entire classroom, large based activities. And honestly, we do it all. So from, again, I'm just going to keep going back to the one example. Imagine each child having their own pumpkin 
that is a, an individual activity. They're working side by side, ripping out their pulp and their rind and their seeds. But then what we do is to then foster small group learning is we'll give the kids craft paper. We'll chop up one pumpkin into wedges. And then the kids collectively, they're getting smocks and paint and paint rollers. And now that one activity together, they're making a pumpkin print mural, right? But the beauty again is you went from a, a, an individual activity to a small group activity to a large based activity with the, the reading of the, the amazing book called Pumpkin Pumpkin to maybe a, a one-on-one activity where those seeds are now in a bowl and the kids are rolling a die and they have to actually count the number on that die and use a tongue to pick up the number of seeds. So the beauty again of curriculum is you really get to premeditate where your kids are and what you need to do and plan to foster that let learning, especially being that all kids are individuals and all are all are very different. I don't believe in um, creating a, you know, in other words, you need to adapt to the needs of the kids. You should not have your kids adapt, you know, to your needs as a school. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing that I love about it is it's realistic because if you, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a physical scientist, I'm a social scientist, but the process is similar in the sense that at one level, I individually have to come up with questions that I'm passionate about trying to answer. And if I don't seek out other people and I don't learn from other people, chances are very good that I'm not going to be as effective in trying to answer those questions, which is exactly what you're describing with the various stages of the of the pumpkin, um, where it does have to start with a student, but then it grows into a community-based inquiry, which I think is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and, and just before we leave the pumpkin, um, we're, we're recording this in early September, but it's clear that you turned the corner to pumpkin spice latte already. Am I guessing right? <laughs> How do you, I'm drinking it right now. How about that? <laughs> hey, um, before we leave, before we leave these topics and, and turn to, um, the COVID discussion, there is, um, one final question I want to ask you yeah. before we started recording, you were talking about sort of a reflection on, um, the, the different types of technologies that we have available to us now and how, if you had that 20 years ago, you would have, um, you know, went crazy with it. How has your teaching evolved and how has technology played a role in that? And, and I guess more importantly, where do you see it going? Um, especially with the age group that you're working with. Yeah. And from different Answers there, I guess, from a teaching perspective or from a teacher's perspective, I should say with, you know, 20 years ago where I started teaching in 1997, I can't believe it's 25 years ago, I'm getting old, where at the time, you know, if you needed to research and come up with really cool, innovative ideas, it didn't exist on the internet back in 1996 and 1997. Yeah. Like you had to go to the library and you had to do your research and you had to buy curriculum books, which, you know, I have just thousands and thousands of resources because I, I'm still a person that likes a hard copy of something. But the beauty of technology today is there is absolutely no need to, rein, to reinvent the wheel as a, as, a, as a pedagogue and as an educator. If you have an idea, it is all there. You just got to go and find it, you know? And just in terms of like planning and making sure that you're need, meeting the needs of your children. And then from a classroom's perspective, my goodness. I mean, you know, last year we brought in coding and robotics. This year I brought in 3D printing. And why? Why am I doing that? Because I, I know that as an owner of a school, whether they're two, three, or four, I have an absolute obligation to give them these early life experiences. Like if you look at animals, for instance, you know, why I, my schools are in New York City. They're in Brooklyn, New York. And why is it fair that the kids upstate 
have the life science readily available. You open up the backyard door, schoolyard ecology could not be any more real. There's birds, there's bees, there's newts and salamanders. But in Brooklyn, what do we see? None of it is there. But it doesn't mean that my kids should not be afforded that opportunity. So I literally bring in about 50 to 60 different vertebrates and invertebrates a year based on units of study, based on animals that live in our classroom walls. And the beauty of that is they leave my school having this amazing, beautiful love and appreciation of the life sciences. And how I know that this is true is I have 50 employees I have a handful of teachers that work for me that I taught when they were five. Hmm. I could take out a Madagascar hissing cockroach. It is amazing that the teachers that I taught when they were children completely gravitate towards the animal that run away. Now, the same is true when it comes to technology. If I don't give, you think about it, the foundation of 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 a building is not set on floors five, six, seven. They're at the bottom. It is up to me to make sure that my kids are rooted in and loving technology and computational learning. So this year, I'm like, let's bring in 3D printing. Just imagine creating a bridge that that connects, you know, art, inventing, and technology. Where where I'm going back to that mealworm. The mealworm, what all of it, you know, within a month, metamorphs into, into these beautiful darkling beetles. And imagine the kids create their own little schematic drawing of the head, the thorax, and the abdomen. And now you're taking that drawing and you're putting it into your 3D printer and the kids are actually bioengineering their own little invented uh, beetle that they thought, you know, what color do you think it should be? How long do you think its antennas could be? I mean, just imagine how beautiful of an experience it is for a four-year-old. So that's what I'm trying to do when it comes to um, giving my kids the experiences and being exposed to technology. And then I'm hoping that when they go to elementary, whether it's private or uh, public, that they're going to continue to foster that love. So let's switch gears um, and, and talk about how your school has adapted to COVID. Um, You know, every, every school district and every city is different in terms of how they're navigating through uh, the pandemic, do you want to kind of just give a big picture of sort of what was happening, you know, over the course of the last school year and into this one with respect to COVID protocols in your school? Sure. When it comes to protocols, um, March 13th, it was a Friday, we got shut down and we were shut down for roughly about five months in New York City. We were allowed to reopen in July of 2020. Um, I decided to wait um, because if you're going to reopen when, and when you look at child safety, you only have one shot to do it right. You can never second guess child safety. So we we reopened in September. What I did as an owner was, you know, I had to rethink and reshape many things as a school. More importantly, when it comes to safety, of course, you could upgrade the HVACs with the proper MERV filters. But what I did was I purchased um, hospital grade air filters that I put to in every one of my classrooms because knowing that this is an airborne virus, I just felt like I needed an additional layer to make sure that the air is clean. We did that. Um, My cleaning crew is always in my school, but what we did was we just kind of did it. um, They were there longer, you know, disinfecting and sanitizing. I had extra assistance to make sure that the, that the mitigation was being done throughout the day. And honestly, I'm, um, I don't want to jinx myself, but with three schools, I had one COVID case in my school all year in 11 months, 10 hours a day, five days a week, and my other schools had two. Um, it kind of just shows that if there's a, a social contract that we create as an organization, and if your teachers and your parents and the children are part of this social contract from testing regularly mm-hmm. to keeping your child home, even if there is a sniffle, you know, it kind of proved that if you... If you have a great safety plan in place, 
that something as scary as as a pandemic can still be navigated through safely. You know, nothing's 100% foolproof, you know, but we almost got there in 11 months of being in operation. And, and it was a struggle. It was exhausting. It still is exhausting with Delta variant that, you know, today, mm-hmm. but we're just trying to take it a step at a time and make really smart informed decisions. Yeah. I mean, you know, at our university, and I think this is true um, with a lot of my colleagues, I felt like last school year was the year that we were sort of reacting to the pandemic. And I feel like this year we're trying to figure out how to navigate more proactively through it. Um, and it's not without it's not without difficulties because, of course, the Delta variant um, completely changed the landscape midsummer as we were prepping for the school year. Exactly. But I, I feel like even with the Delta um, uh, variant, all of us are trying to figure out how to navigate through it again in a much more proactive way. We know things that work, and we know things that we want to try to instill in the community. I think. I, I, lo- I love the way you described it as being a community issue um, for for your school. Uh, now, is your school uh, masking with your age group? So the city of New York has not yet made it a mandate for ages five and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it is highly recommended. And I love what you just said. We used last year, nobody, nobody had to live through a pandemic while running a school, right? Or maybe if you did back in the 60s, you know, but I definitely didn't. But what I did was, you know, I I took every experience I learned from it. For instance, face mask usage. Last year, the Department of Health said, again, in New York City, it is highly recommended, but it is absolutely not a requirement. So I want to appreciate everybody's subjective uh, view on the issue. For instance, two-year-olds being in a face mask poses lots of safety issues because there's drink time, there's snack time, there's lunch time, there's rest time. And during any of those intervals, they can't be in a face mask. But mm-hmm. my four-year-olds, you know, you look at a four-year-old, they have the fine motor capabilities to take a face mask and put it on and off themselves. So what I did this year was I made rules and policies based on what I was able to determine and learn from last year. For instance, my four-year-olds were all able to do it fine motor-wise because the teacher is not allowed to put it on and off them uh, on a child because then you're contaminating the mask. So what I did, I did it in tiers this year. Um, I'm making it highly recommended throughout all of my schools. I am making it required. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. I'm I'm making it highly recommended for my two-year-olds. The parents that feel that their two-year-olds are able to do it on their own, great. My four-year-olds, absolutely required because last year I was able to see, I I mean, we have three schools. I had maybe about 64-year-olds within the three schools. They were all able to do it on their own. Great. We're doing it this year. Let's make that a requirement. And for my three-year-olds, it is super highly recommended. If they're not able to do it, the teachers are going to facilitate and guide the process so that if they're not able to build on those skills at the start, by by, it's like potty training. They may start the year in September not being able to use the toilet, but the minute those routines are being built, there's this beautiful organic growth. And we're kind of using the same platform and view when it comes to face mask usage as a school. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked a lot at, at Ohio University about the importance of well-being during this time and you know how to have um, authentic uh, but socially and emotionally supportive conversations with students about just everything that they went through. Um, like we we sort of say that this year, this fall, we have three classes of freshmen on campus because there was the class, um, you know, when the pandemic hit and they had to go home mid-year. There was the incoming class last year that, that 
really for all intents and purposes, never got to step foot on campus and then the freshman class this year. So we're trying to think about how to have those conversations with students to support them. When you get to the K, uh, the pre-K setting, are those conversations that your students are wanting to have or that you feel like they need to have? I mean, is that is that a part of, you know, the learning process about how to deal with the fact that we are in, you know, a significant um, time in, in the world history? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's very important for the teachers to be very well versed, you know, prior to the start of the school year to think about how to have those conversations. So, you know, the minute we, we leave our school and you go to a space that's outside, that's a shared space by other people you know, all of our kids have to wear a face mask. So those conversations are consistently happening. And the key is just to not make the kids be afraid of anything. It's like, you know, how do you have these conversations by by showing love and empathy, by even making them fun, you know, encouraging a child at the age of two to wear a face mask. But as a parent, you're buying them the most fun face masks with the most amazing characters that they can relate to will mm-hmm. highly encourage a kid to want to wear that face mask. So you have to, again, you know, rethink and reshape even face mask usage. You know, you don't want the ugly hospital blue mask for a two-year-old and three-year-old, you know, it's like, there's a lot of fun ways that the teachers and the parents could work collectively to have a child then adapt to wearing something like a face mask. And, and those conversations are crucial, especially from the four-year-old perspective. You know, exmissions is such an important part of every preschool, um, of every preschool, right? Because when they leave my school, they're going to go to a, either a public or private, and we don't know where we're going to be next year. So my teachers have to make sure that the kids have an understanding of, you know, why we need to, how we do it properly so that when they transition out of our pre-K class and they go into a kindergarten public or private, they have acquired all of those skills from learning and reading and writing and math to also understanding why you have to wash your hands, why you got to wear a face mask, why we should be sanitizing all day. So it's all, it's kind of like we've added a whole new aspect of teaching and learning to the sector with, with what we're living through with this COVID situation, you know? Yeah, I would especially imagine that with the philosophy of your school, I mean, this is part of life that people should be asking questions about. So it it seems like it would fit uh, in some ways perfectly with your philosophy. Um, I want to end uh, in, end our discussion. You, you've talked um, a couple times in, in the discussion so far about some reflections about students that you've had yeah. uh, over the course of your career. W- when you think about yourself as a teacher, what, what are some of the examples of students that you've had that that sort of embrace the inquiry-based um, approach that you've practiced as a teacher that you can still see evidence of now that they've reached, you know, perhaps young adulthood or, or you know, they're, they're older now? Yeah. You know, that's really funny you asked me that question. About a week ago, I saw a boy named Fabian. Well, he's a man now, a man named Fabian who actually is in the military. And he sees me. And looks at me, I look at him and obviously I'm like, oh, why is this person looking at me? You know, because when they leave me, they're, they're 10 and now they're 25. And he's like, Carmelo, you know, it, you don't remember me, but it's me. I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going on? He goes, you know, it's amazing that still to this day, I remember in the fifth grade, you did this whole food chemistry study and we t- took one gram of different types of foods and we put them on two inch paper bag squares and we saw the fat saturation content on them and we weighed them and we saw how much fat was in mayonnaise, right? That till this day, Carmelo, I never had mayonnaise 
from <laughs> when you did that one experiment. And honestly, it's things like that that happen all the time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they have to pursue a career in science. It means that what I did was I created people, I created future scientists, even from personal perspective, just be skeptical. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. And, and that happens all the time. And also happens where I had a dad, a French dad, and his daughter's name was Nadej. And he turns around and he goes, uh, his name was Charles. He's like, you know, Carmelo, you know, with the big French accent, he's like, you should be very proud. I'm like, well, why? He goes, two of the girls that you taught, I forget what year it was, just made into the top 10 science fair finalists in wow. the country. And I'm like, wow, like that is amazing. You know, so two of the girls that I taught were nationally ranked. And and it's it's stories like that to continue to motivate me to just want to do more. You know, I am 47, but I feel like I'm, I say I'm 47. I think I look 37. I, 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 you know, I wish I felt like I was 27, you know, but I, I'm so ambitious with wanting to create a movement of just trying to create this new ideology. It's not a new ideology. And that's the scary thing is just have people appreciate making these beautiful holistic connections and the power of inquiry lives with people forever. If you make them confident, to consistently ask questions. It benefits you in the future. It benefits you if you're trying to apply for a job. You know, don't be afraid to ask questions. That's a great place to end it. I should ask, um, were you unscathed by Hurricane Ida, I hope? That's really funny you asked me that because I was having that conversation before we started where unfortunately one of my schools um, was not. Um, I went there. My mom is this old school Sicilian, called me up crying, and I went to her house to help her with a flood. And I said, you know, let me go check on my schools. And my third school in Park Slope, unfortunately, was hit. I was there for about 10 hours with the wet vax. I must have emptied out thousands and thousands of gallons. I saved my school from being flooded. And, you know, I've had a whole team in place for seven days because our first day with kids on site is this Friday. And I really think we're going to hit the day of getting it ready, you know? Well, we wish you the best of luck uh, in getting it done. And we're sorry that that you got impacted by it, as did so many people. Thank you so much, Scott. You know, Well, it's been wonderful to get to know you. And um, I wish you nothing but the best as you and your students and your faculty begin the academic year. And it's been great learning about um, your, your school and your philosophy as a teacher. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Carmelo Piazza is the Executive Director and Education Director for the Brooklyn Preschool of Science. You can learn more about Carmelo and the Preschool of Science by visiting the website, which we've linked in the text accompanying the podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through all of the popular podcasting apps like Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact the staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments. You can go to our Facebook page and then send us a direct message. Just look for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook, and you'll be able to find us. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Have a great day.